Welcome to Season 2 of I Fucking Love This Record, a music podcast hosted by me, the Derek Caraview. For Season 2, my guest hosts chose the record, and I'll be honest, sometimes I do not fucking love it. However, I did fucking love talking to each and every one of them about their choice. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Today we're going to be talking about The Joshua Tree, the fifth studio album from U2. It was produced by Daniel Lenoir and Brian Eno. It was released on March 9, 1987 on Island Records. It received critical acclaim, topped the charts in over 20 countries, and became the fastest-selling album in British history. Uh, the album won Grammy Awards for Album of the Year and Best Rock Performance by a Duo or Group with a Vocal in 1988. And it is today uh, one of the best-selling albums in the world. On the other mic today, we have a musician, a teacher, a fellow American, also living here in Poland, Paul Preusser. Tell the folks more about you. Sure. So um, so I grew up in Denver, Colorado. I um, got into music at a pretty early age. Um, my parents uh, had a had my parents' friends had a son who was a few years older than me. And that was really my sort of entrance into uh, the world of rock music. So he would just make me all these different mixtapes. And so that was one really big influence. This is probably when I was even seven or eight. Also, at around the same time, probably in 82, 83, um, my parents got cable television and on cable uh, was MTV. And so I started getting into like a lot of the bands that were on MTV and especially U2 at that time. Like I remember the videos from like Sunday Bloody Sunday or New Year's Day that I used to watch a lot. They were on MTV all the time. So that was one of the bands that I had really gotten into at that time. Uh, and, and U2 was even one of the bands that was kind of a big influence of me getting involved in music. So I got an electric guitar when I was 15 and I haven't looked back since then. Um, I, I played in a couple bands when I was in high school and college. And then uh, I got into jazz and playing jazz a lot. And then eventually I have ended up as a classical composer, uh, writing some kind of avant-garde uh, classical, contemporary classical music. Uh, I came to Wrocław about 14 years ago. Uh, I came here originally to study composition. Uh, I did a master's degree here. Uh, and then I've stayed here ever since. You kind of hinted at this already, but uh, how specifically did this album or how did U2 enter your life? Well, as I said, U2 entered my life probably be through MTV. This record, so in the seventh grade, I met who would become my best friend in all of middle school and high school, Josh. And the two of us, he was really into U2 as well. He had older brothers uh, who were both musicians and both playing in bands. And so he got kind of got into music about a year before I did, like in terms of playing music. But we were both big fans of U2 at that time. So I think at that point I had started getting some of the earlier records because the Joshua Tree wasn't out yet. So I had bought a couple of U2 records. I think I had like Boy, October war and under a blood red sky already before the joshua tree came out so i was already a fan okay well. before the joshua tree came out and then i don't remember i i don't know if i had gotten the record the day it came out but i definitely bought it on vinyl and i got it not long after it had come out it's possible that i'd seen with or without you like the video for that i think was released around the time the record was released so i don't know which came first yeah that was that was the first single i'm sure it so was definitely it was with or without you then I think I still haven't found what I'm looking for, if I'm not mistaken, and then Where the Streets Have No Name, yeah. and then In God's Country. 
after I got that record, I mean, I was hooked and I fell in love with the record. Uh, I went and I mean, you two, it's sort of like I've grown up with them. I mean, I've grown older. I'm not I mean, they're not even that old yet, but I mean, I've grown older with them. And the Joshua Tree was kind of a key moment for me because uh, it was my first concert. So in, uh, I guess it was in November of 1987, uh, I was 13 uh, and I saw the Joshua Tree tour. It was my first concert. I, I told my parents, I'm going. Like, I don't give a shit. I don't care that I'm only 13. Like, I'm going. And if you're not taking me, I'm going to find somebody who will. So I ended up going with my friend's uh, sister and her boyfriend uh, okay. were a few years older than we were. And they had a car. And, and the rest is history. Uh, I've, I've, I've loved that record for many, many, many years. Uh, when they did the 30th anniversary Joshua Tree tour back in 2016, I saw that both in Berlin and then again in Arizona. And yeah, it's, it's just one of those records that has always been with me and will always be with me. What about you? Uh, uh, you? You had some pretty interesting things to say about this record, uh, sort of starting out and how it sort of, <laughs> the record has evolved for you over time. Sure. Well, the way the album entered my life is that I was alive in 1987 and had functioning ears. You could not escape this album at this time. It just was everywhere. And I didn't like it very much. Now, the first time I had heard you 2 was probably in 1983, I think like New Year's Day. Now, I didn't have MTV at this point, but I'm sure, and I would stay up and watch Friday night videos to kind of, if you remember Friday night videos, or uh, uh, there was another daytime program called Radio 1990, uh, which played videos on, I think it was, it was like USA or TNT or one of those, that was their video program. I had MTV, so I Yeah, so I didn't, I didn't really have MTV, I think until 85 or 86, but I remember I really liked New Year's Day. And so this was kind of a weird time, <sighs> weird time's not the right way to say it, because I just, I, I listened to the radio a lot and I'd watch what videos I could watch, but I hadn't really, I didn't realize there were genres for a long time. I just... You know, and I listened to a lot of pop radio, so whatever was like kind of current. And there was a few things that would catch my ears, like, oh, and I thought that U2 song was pretty interesting. And some of the, let's say, new wave that was coming out at the time, uh, while also listening to just kind of straight up pop, but also some heavy metal uh, when I was younger, because that, let's say, about 84. There was this little bit of an explosion with, you know, so there was Def Leppard and Twisted Sister right. and yeah. and that and Motley Crue, you know, and these were all things that I, I liked, but I didn't, again, didn't kind of draw any distinction at this point. So it was just, it, you know, it was all on the radio and some of the dudes had long hair and some right. of them didn't, you know. And then it was probably right around when this album came out that I had really just dove headfirst into listening to heavy metal. And so that's what I was listening to at the time. And so I was listening to like the White Snake album that came out that year, and I was listening to Cinderella, and you know, so I was not listening to good music necessarily, but it was what I needed at the time. So I was I was fifteen, and that summer my sisters were gone. I have two younger sisters, and I was home by myself for that summer. And so my I don't remember where I think that because my family's from from Michigan. And so I don't know if they both went back to Michigan or if they both went somewhere different. Mm -hmm. But I don't remember why I didn't go. But it was just me. So I had like the TV was mine. The food was mine. Everything was mine. It was great. But also my best friend uh, through elementary school and middle school moved to the other side of the state. And so I didn't have anybody to hang out with. And then my other friend went to go visit family in Georgia. So it was just me. And somehow I got just hooked on on heavy metal at this point but i was watching a lot and i think i i definitely had mtv at that point and then so they just like you couldn't get away from you too right 
Yeah, it was on all the time. Yeah, and at first, I think I didn't dislike them, but after a while, I fucking hated them. I just hated them. And now there's a lot of bands that I've gone, that I didn't listen to at the time because I, I was just, I was fully invested in heavy metal at this point. Okay. Uh, and so there were some things like I've gone back, like I can appreciate The Cure now, but I hated The Cure at the time. I love The Cure yeah, at the time. Yeah, yeah right. So. There's been a few things I've gone back, but it just, I don't like Bono. I don't like Bono's voice. I don't like Bono's face. I don't like Bono's anything. I just don't like the man. So that's what really separates me from you two. And so I don't really, and that's fine. I, you know, you don't have to like everything. You choose a band I don't really, I don't really like. I went on tour. I did my first tour of stand-up last September. And I don't know exactly why. I listen to this album every day on that tour. Sometimes two or three times a day. And I think I caught part of the melody of one of the songs because my son likes to listen to this band called Two Cellos. Okay. And it's two dudes with cellos and they reimagine pop songs, rock songs. So anything from ACDC's Thunderstruck to Celine Dion's My Heart Will Go On. So, And I think they do two U2 covers, both songs from this album. And I don't remember which one, but I just had that melody floating in the back of my head and I couldn't quite place it because I don't listen to U2. And then I realized what it was. And then I went ahead and I found the album and I just... And I was on the road. I was touring. What song was it? I think it was, it was either with or with... Not, oh, hold on. Let me double check here. It was either with or without you or I still haven't found what I'm looking for. One of the... I can't remember because I think they do both. And so then I just like, okay. And 15-year-old me hated this album and 30-year-old me didn't even think about this album. But somehow, you know, I was 46 on a bus going to Croatia uh, and then to... Because I, I did six different countries. Uh-huh. And it was just me. I was by myself. And something about these songs spoke to me at that time. So during the tour, I listened to this every single day. And I don't know that I've listened to it at all uh, since then until we decided to do this podcast. Now, you had mentioned a couple of different albums, and I purposely wanted to go with this one because there's going to be a little conflict in how I approach. Because some of these things I'm going to say both good and bad things about, and I'm going to mean it both ways. So that's it. So like I said, and I, I often wonder like if, I, if my friend hadn't moved or if it's something like I could have easily gotten into... U2 and the Smiths and REM and all this stuff, but I just... Because you went a different direction. I was in a different direction, I think, because then my buddy came back from uh, Georgia. He was in Athens, Georgia, and he came back listening to U2 and the Hoodoo Gurus and Husker Du, and at that point, I was listening to Judas Priest, and so I, but now it's like I listen to Husker Du, and I'm like, how did I not like this back then? I don't understand, you know, because they, they rock, and I just really wish sometimes that I would have picked it, but I, I just, it doesn't hurt my feelings that I don't like you two, that's for sure. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and get started here with our track-by-track analysis, and since, uh, since this was your choice, uh, I'm going to let you start here with track number one, where the streets have no name. Paul. Yeah, man, what to say, you know, this is... This is one of my favorite U2 songs, period. Like, this and With or Without You, like, from this record, like, those two songs, I, I think, are just two of the greatest songs that have been written. So, where the streets have no name, I mean, the, the beginning of this song is, like, the organ that's in the beginning just sets this mood of, like, like you're, you're about to undertake something profound for me, that there's this kind of profound gospel-like... Like just these very simple chord changes that are that are, are are changing over very slow periods of time, and then when the edge comes in with that guitar in the beginning, it's, it's, he just starts that little delay line of this this one repeated line, and and this is really kind of sets up what this whole record in a lot of ways is about, which is landscapes, everything that that they do, and, and Brian Eno was so perfect for them. I mean, like like if you if you look at kind of the early U two records. 
up until um, the Unforgettable Fire. You know, that was the first record that Brian Eno got involved with them with. So after War, after the um, Under a Blood Red Sky tour, mm-hmm. um, you know, Eno got involved. And, and Bono had said something earlier. He said, you know, like a lot of the bands that came out that were really famous, like the Rolling Stones and Clapton and all of those guys, like they all were art school. Like all of those guys went to art school. And, and he said, like, none of us went to art school. We just went to like general high school. We got instruments and we just kind of figured it out on our own. So sure. they said, like, Brian Eno was our art school. <laughs> and his fingerprints are all over this record. So when the edge comes in with that guitar line that, that just sort of, sort of frames the, the, how the whole record is going to unfold. I mean, I think it's, it's just perfect. You know, that song, I mean, like the peaks and valleys in that song are amazing. And, and throughout the record, it's not just here, but with, with or without you, even more so. Like if you listen to the drumming from Larry Mullen Jr., he's so great at, you know, because he's not trained at all. I think even after, after this record and after this tour, if I'm not mistaken, I know at some point he and Adam Clayton went to New York and, and took lessons. Like these guys are like the, the biggest band in the world at that point. And they're going to take lessons to how to play better, you know. But he was always really good at, at kind of holding back a little bit. So when you listen to the way he hits the drums at the beginning of that song, and then by the peak of that song, like he's hitting them harder, and there's a different color and a different timbre to the way that he builds these songs. And I think that that's definitely Brian Eno's. Like, I don't know that Larry Mullen Jr. would have figured that out, but Brian Eno did, and God bless him for it. <laughs> This is the song that initially made me hate you two. <laughs> because because of the rooftop concert video. Oh, I love the video. This thing was played every 22 minutes on MTV it for was. an entire summer. You could not get away from it. And at first it was kind of cool. And this reminds me a little bit of, and not sonically, but culturally, of Peter Gabriel's Sledgehammer. Okay. Where it's like, at first, I may have liked that song the first two, three thousand times that it was played. And then afterwards, it's like, I hate Sledgehammer. I hate Peter Gabriel. I hate anybody in the world named Peter or Gabriel. You know, it was just (laughs) one of those things. But because there's so much, I heard it so much. And there's, and it wasn't that I didn't like the song. It was that I got sick of the song. Sometimes now I bought uh, So on vinyl just a couple of weeks ago. And now it's just more of a nostalgia. Like, I don't hate sledgehammer because i don't think i hated it initially uh-huh. and i think that's why partly i was able to get back into this because number one i think the audio was slightly different on the video because i think there was part of a live feed so it's not what i remember exactly oh you mean of, of where the streets have no name yeah so back to that so back to the, the streets have no name where i'm sure I, the first couple of times i heard it because i didn't have this animosity because the first two singles i think were successful but they didn't go crazy with those first two singles like they went crazy with this song i mean this song was just you know i can say uh we're being shut down like i can just still hear him say that in the video because they're you know the police were there trying to kick him off the roof of them because everybody was freaking out you know and so going back in and listening to this afterwards i still have a little bit of that nostalgia from 1987 summer by myself you know it was great and i don't hate it now i know that this song has more like religious connotation but for me I'm on a bus and a Flix bus going 25 hours to Croatia and then having toured like little bits and like, you know, you just kind of roll into town and I'm not a superstar. <laughs> you know, I, I don't have a limo waiting for me when I get right. there. You know, I'm not flying in and then going and then to the hotel and then the venue and then back out again. I'm on a bus 
and I'm going to end up at the bus station in the middle of town and maybe somebody from the venue will come help me out. Just as likely not. And I'm going to have to find my way to the, you know, not the beautiful hotel, but the hostel. And then I'm going to have to find my way to the venue. And again, sometimes people will help, but other times they can't. And I understand that, you know, it's the same thing with us here. We try to pick uh, any of the traveling comedians up, but we can't always do that. So it's not, I'm not saying this from a bad way, but just sort of like this, the streets where the streets have no names, like those streets have names. I just can't fucking read them. Right. I don't know where I am. I don't know what's going on. And and it's even a little bit more strange when you're in another Slavic speaking country, because there's just that touch of Polish that you're like, oh, I recognize a little bit, but it's like the gibberish is just slightly different. Mm -hmm. And then, or you go someplace like Hungary, and then it's just like, you know, some of the street names, they look like you're calling up an elder god, you know, so (laughs) trying to make your way around. And that's, you know, it's both, it's, it's fun and it's exciting, but it's also a little bit scary and a little bit disorienting. So that song is associated with you now with this tour. Yeah. And so now I appreciate the song. Like I say, like like the organ at the beginning, I I don't, you know, that was kind of cool. And it's like, I I love sometimes because it's got that escape to it, you know, that it's like this landscape, like you were saying. And so it it, it opens up and I don't really care for the Edge's guitar playing very much because I think he's just doing simple. I think he's like more like with effects than with actual playing is how it feels. But he has a very identifiable sound. So even if I don't like, so it's like I don't really care for Carlos Santana very much, but I can tell a Carlos Santana song in five seconds, you know. So there's something to that, and and he has that, and just something about now. So it's like this weird nostalgia from 1987 combined with this specific tour the first time i did like an actual extended tour and now i think i like this song but i don't know Hmm. it will for me always be uh be one of my favorites yeah i mean and i can i can and i can see why i see why people like the song and and just something about just the approach resonated with me at that time right and not in the way that they meant obviously but that's the beautiful thing about music or art in general is that just because that was their intentions doesn't mean that's what i have to get out of it right and that's what I have. So now it's like when I hear that, I think I'm more likely to think of the tour than like, ugh, Bono. So that brings us on to track two. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. This feeds right. I'm I'm out on tour. Uh, I know people are coming to see stand-up comedy in English. They're not necessarily coming to see me. They see the name, the Derek Care of You, but they're just coming because they want to see this particular type of entertainment. Nobody's coming out specifically to see me. And I understand that and I'm fine with that. I mean, it'd be nice (laughs) if, if, uh, if it was a little bit different. So something about that searching and just, you know, trying to, trying to connect with an audience outside of Poland. And, uh, you know, there's a lot going on with that. And again, I'm alone and I'm traveling with just, you know, me in a suitcase and there's something about it. And so again, this song spoke to me a bit. Now, this is another, this is one where I'm kind of reminded that I don't, care for Bono because I don't like some of the vocal inflections that he does Okay. in this particular song. There's certain ways that, and I can't remember, I forgot to write it down, uh, just the way he sings it. Because mm-hmm. I remember like he's singing like from the back of his throat a few times and I'm like, why are you doing that? And that just sort of pulls me out of the song yeah, just a little I, bit. I, it's like their gospel song, right? So yeah. I mean, it's, it's really like connected to the gospel and he said something like a lot of our lyrics are either like running towards God because they're very religious, like the whole band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and he said something like uh, some of our songs are running towards God and some of them are running away from God. And this was a song about running away from God mm-hmm. a little bit, but through the gospel perspective. And I know that I think Brian Eno and Daniel uh, Lanois, Lanois uh, they kind of persuaded him to kind of look a little bit at the gospel. So... I mean, some of those vocal inflections might be like him trying to be a gospel singer that he's just not 
I mean, he's not really a gospel singer. He's just not that kind of <laughs> sure. vocalist. It's interesting. This song, I think, of all the the really big U2 hits, this is probably my least favorite okay. of them. I don't dislike the song at all. I, I quite like the song, actually. Um, it's it's nice. It's it's a, it's just a basic blues. I mean, it's like a 1-4-5 blues progression through the entire song. What's really cool about that, though, is that the edge doesn't really change the chords so much so like like the guitar part is really kind of static and then the changes happen in the bass and and that's really a cool thing uh in this song that that makes it i think really unique and and interesting and uh, it's kind of like a fresh take on gospel actually that that like a a, a typical gospel song wouldn't really unfold in that way Mm -hmm. and so i thought that that's that's a really interesting thing about this song. I think I also just didn't love the video. I, I loved the other two. I loved the, the street top uh, performance video from where the streets have no name. I loved the with or without you video. It's something maybe about that, that it just didn't resonate with me, but it's amazing how many of our memories, cause you know, you, I think we're only about two years. I think I'm only about two years older than you, but we have that, you know, we associate so much music with MTV at that point, as opposed to the radio. Sure. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And the the effect of the video, and it's like you know, again, to go back to Peter Gabriel, like I understand why they played Sledgehammer so much because it was really cool at the time, but also there there wasn't a lot to play, so you know, there's there's certain reasons why things got overkilled. But uh, yeah, I, I have only vague memories of this video. And what's you know, what's funny is that you know when you think about, I mean, the MTV generation, the MTV MTV was really only raining for what 20 years something like that i mean if you think about like the early 80s but by 2000 i mean was anyone watching mtv at that point yeah but not for music exactly i mean it was like the real world and like so i mean mtv still a cultural force but just videos aren't really as big of a part of that as they were let's say till mid 90s i think right you know by by that time they mainly been more like uh lifestyle shows and game shows so basically like people like we were the ones who grew up and, and that was the thing like like the video was was almost more important than the record itself in yeah, some ways seemingly so on to track three with or without you paul yeah this is certainly my favorite song on the record okay uh, yeah I, I love with or without you the, the first moment i heard it i, I fell in love with the song the song is is brilliant in its simplicity. It, it's also amazing too that um, that it really was. I think if I remember correctly, like some of these songs, like "With or Without You" and and "Where the Streets Have No Name," I think they almost didn't even make it on the record. Oh, really? Yeah. I, there, there's, there's a couple of stories. I forget the sort of which is which, but they they both were sort of ripe with problems. And "With or Without You," the biggest problem is basically. It's one chord progression for the entire song. Mm-hmm. Like nothing changes. It's just this repeated progression, and it and it builds in dynamic. It builds in texture. It builds in the dramatic way that Bono builds it. I think is really brilliant in this. But really, what brought this tune together was that the edge. You you mentioned it before, and we at some point it doesn't necessarily have to be now, but but during this podcast, we should really talk a little bit about his guitar playing because. He is sort of like the anti-hero of the guitar and that he doesn't, as, as an actual player, I mean, he's not doing anything at all that's virtuosic, but there's kind of a virtuosity to the way in which he experiments and the way in which he's able to sort of transform the instrument into something else. He's so great at that. He's so great at 
using effects. And this is a perfect example of that because a collaborator of his gave him like the ultimate sustainable, uh, like the, the guitar with the ultimate sustain. It would have made like <laughs> Nigel Tufnell from Spinal Tap weep, you know, it's like the guitar he was looking for. Sure. It was basically a, a guitar that was designed in such a way that you would just have uh, an infinite sustain. I think it's even called like the infinite sustain guitar or something like that. And so all of those little sort of like the ambient type guitar sounds that he gets of just these kind of like floating lines throughout that song, throughout all of the introduction uh, until he gets into the clangy parts. Like that's all basically because of that guitar. And they were trying to figure out how to make that song work and how to build it. And it was really that guitar that, that brought it together. Oh, okay. That's it. I didn't. I hadn't. I didn't really read much about that. Because uh, for me, this is a song uh, that I didn't get sick of during that time. Because I think it was the initial single. I think it got plenty of radio play. Oh you know, yeah. I recognize it, but I don't remember this being one of those like a cudgel. You know. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, nah. Oh, I thought it got played more than where the streets have no name. Actually, really. I think I it was on more. That could very well be. It might just be that it's so good that you just didn't bother you as much. That could be. I never felt the animosity towards this song. Like even at my worst, most depraved hatred of you. Too. I always thought like they had three songs I could go to and not be upset by it. Like if people had to play U2 in front of me, it's like it could be New Year's Day, this song and one that for me, that is all the U2 I really need. It's funny listening to this one because sometimes I like it more and sometimes I like it less. Okay. I think there's not a lot going, but it's like, I think it's a good song and I can see why people love this song and I can, I can see where you get that. Like this is one that can burrow inside of you type thing. So, and I, listening to it in, in the last couple of days hasn't done a lot for me. Like I like it, but it wasn't like when I was, oh yeah, you know, but of course I was just listening on my computer so it's like, you know, a crappy sound. I wasn't even wearing headphones at this right. point. And I was just trying to make notes and, and collect my thoughts on it. And I realized that this song has never been like high and it's never been low for me. It's always been like, yeah, that's, that's a good tune. I can, I can deal with that song if I have to. That's a song that you should really listen, listen through it sometime once and just listen from the perspective of the drums. So just follow the drums through the song and see how he sort of builds the song through the way in which he plays. And the same thing with the guitar too. Like just follow it once and just see how the guitar sort of transforms that song and how they build through what those guys are doing. Okay, I'll, I'll definitely do that. But, you know, again, I think it's a beautiful song. It's a very pretty sounding song. So then that brings us to track four, Bullet in the Blue Sky. And this may be my favorite song on the album. I like this one because yeah. it's uh, this is like a, this is a cool track. It is. There's some interesting things going on there. There's a couple of vocal things that he does that irritates me, like that strong that he does during okay. the spoken word part. Okay, yeah, the spoken word part, you know, that that can maybe leave people feeling... Because uh, I don't mind the spoken, but it was just like all the colors of a royal flush. Ah, okay. You know, that just irritates the shit out of me right. when he does that. And it's like, and a royal flush has only one color. That's, you know, <laughs> it's a flush. Anyway, uh, sorry. <laughs> but I like this tune. You have to forgive him, he's Irish. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> but I like this tune, and I feel like there's like an awesome heavy metal version of this out there somewhere. Yeah, I actually looked it totally. up. So I think Sepultura does it and Queensryche does a live version of it. Uh-huh. And those were both okay. But some, they're out there. I don't know where it exists yet. It doesn't exist yet. But somewhere, someday, somebody is going to make this a fucking awesome metal tune. Yeah, it, it, it totally has those elements. I love the guitar play in this one and I like the Eno influence, like the background, just like the things. It's like there's 
like a cybernetic war happening in the background of, yeah. this, of this song or something. So what do you think about this one? Every song is basically like a different landscape. And, and this song, I think, um, inspired by like his trip to like the Civil War in El Salvador or something. And, and the Mothers of the Disappeared, the last song, it was also sort of influenced by that trip from the same conflict. Yeah, Bullet the Blue Sky. Basically, you know, when I was, when I was 13, and even up until more recently... I think the album ended for me after those four songs. Like I, I listened to the first side of that all the time, and and like the second side was, with the exception of maybe "In God's Country," that was really like the one tune that I remembered. Like if I if I look at the track by track listing of that record, I identify the first four songs. I don't even know what "Running to Stand" still sounds like because I'm usually going back and playing the record just from. I just go back to where the streets have no name, and then I picked up "In God's Country." But everything else, like, I, I couldn't have sung that for you and until more recently. But yeah, Bullet the Blue Sky, I think, was one of the, the great songs also on that record. And certainly, I mean, like, they put the heavy hitters in, in the beginning on this record. Yeah, so they, they, I was going to say, this is front-loaded. It is totally front-loaded. So then bringing us up to uh, track five, Running to Stand Still. Uh, so other than maybe not being able to hum it six, week, six weeks ago, what, what, are you, what are your thoughts after having listened maybe once or twice before doing the show? I, I don't think that there's a weak song on the record. Um I think that that running to stand still, I think after, I think it fits perfectly to end aside, fits perfectly after Bullet the Blue Sky. That Bullet the Blue Sky is such an intense song. Running to stand still kind of is, is a breath. It sort of just gives you a chance to breathe before getting into the second side of the record. I can definitely see that because now this is the first song that I was not familiar with. Mm-hmm. I had never heard the song that, I, that I'm aware of. I don't know that I ever sat down and listened to this album. Right. I don't believe any friends of mine own this album, so I didn't get any of the passive listening. Uh, so this is the first time when I'm on the tour that I'm like, I don't know this song at all after those first four, uh, which you know you can like even I don't even know if they released Bullet in the Blue Sky. They did. It was it was a, it was a, uh, I think it was also a single. Was it okay? Well, I don't know actually. Now now that I think about it, it might not have been released. I'm wondering if it was a B side and it got some radio play or something because it's one of those definitely I, I, got a lot of radio. I had heard it, but I don't know that it was a single. Okay. I'm not sure. We can always look later. But uh, so this is the first one I have. So I have no baggage other than the fact that it's U2 and Bono is singing it. And it's okay. It's an okay tune. And there was just something about the way he sings uh, Scream Without Raising Your Voice. Because yeah. that ends that, th- you know, there was like the speak without, I can't remember. It was like, that was the third part of, you know, so that's what finished off the melody. And that really spoke to me for some, and I kind of, without having ever heard the song, I remember singing along with that line the very first time I heard it. Hmm. I predicted where it was going to go. Uh-huh. That was the time when his voice hit me you know and it's like that i i just there's something about that that makes the whole song work better for me if that's not there this is just well we need to inside one right and we don't want to totally front load it's a good tune it's not a great tune but that just something about that that particular line that i could uh, i could listen to a few times when mm-hmm. i'm on, on a bus a quick word from our friends over at the she will rock you podcast hi i'm leah and i'm bethann and we're she will rock you she Will Rock You is a bi-weekly podcast about rock history. Each episode, we talk about an artist and their lives, but we do it a little differently. You see, we noticed there was a lack of ladies hosting music podcasts, so we wanted to fix it. And here we are, two badass millennial ladies talking about rock music our parents wouldn't let us listen to. As a bonus, you'll even get our beer recommendations at the end. Find us wherever you listen to podcasts. And remember, don't, don't do drugs! 
And now, back to the show. So now we, uh, we flipped the record over. We are on uh, track one of side two, Red Hill Mining Town. Yeah, so getting into, getting into uh, side two, it was funny because um, I think in 2016, when I, when I got the tickets to go see them play in Berlin, where you anniversary tour, I knew that they were going to do the record start. To, I, I don't know if they, I didn't know at that time if they were going to do the songs in order, which they did. I kind of felt like at that point, oh, maybe I should actually listen to side two of the record before going to the concert. <laughs> <laughs> to start seeing and like you know there's so many gems on this record like there's so many great songs on this record that that i i didn't really know and i didn't have an experience with and red hill mining town is one of those songs like it's it's for me a a, a really great song it was funny because uh at the concert like I, I think part of the reason i like it so much is because the concert version of this was just unbelievable it was so good and I don't know, I mean, you hated you 2 at that time, so you probably don't know about, like, the drama that went along with them in this record. Did you kind of, did you ever sort of see any documentaries about them, or? U2 is one of those bands that you just sort of, you end up knowing more about than you necessarily want to know. <laughs> okay. And I'm sure I've heard some, I know there was some issues with this, but I don't remember what, though. Well, I think, like, the, the biggest deal with this record is that they had to sort of figure out how to be rock stars, because they were popular before. I mean, they were obviously doing quite well for themselves before the Joshua Tree came out. But they explode. I mean, they basically, like, they started the Joshua Tree as an arena band, and they finished the Joshua Tree as a stadium band. And, you know, that's, that's a pretty crazy jump to go from, you know, 15,000 people up to, you know, 75,000 people, like 70, 75,000 people at a show. And, and you know, and with everything that went along with that, I mean, you know, they kind of just had to figure that out. And I think they had to figure out, like, and Bono said at that time, you know, he said, like, they, we didn't really know how to play those songs. Like, like they had never done Red Hill Mining Town live before that tour. And and he said, you know, these songs, when we, when we released this record, we were kind of finding our way that we come back and revisit this this material 30 years later like we found our way and now we're able to kind of really play this music finally like we recorded it before but now we're at a point in our careers where we can actually play it i read some until that 30th anniversary tour they'd never played that song live exactly they did it one time as a sound check but it had never been played because and here's the thing i don't like the song for me this sounds like someone trying to sound like you too so they could record the intro for a tv show like a teen drama but you couldn't actually afford you too so you got somebody to sound like you too <laughs> And that's what this sounds like. I can see like the fresh faces and the names coming up and the cute mom and the blah, blah, you know. So this oh, is wow. like a, they live in Red Hill Mining Town instead of 90210. And, okay. You know, then it's the, you know, and I just, I just don't like the song. Oh, okay. This is about where this, like my goodwill towards this album starts to end. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think like when you talked about with Running to Stand Still, I think that song still works for me as a song because of certain aspects of it. Mm-hmm. And this one, it just, it sounds like somebody trying to sound like you two and failing. Oh, interesting. I think part of uh, like the imagery, they, they had a brass band. Uh, they, did a, they had like a brass band play an arrangement that they played during the concert. And then like they, they used the video of like you two playing on one side and then like the brass band playing against them, even though this is only on video. Like the video element of that was such a powerful thing that I, I think it really helped kind of hook me into the song a little bit more. And I think they had to, because I want to say just again, in the little research I did here, that uh, 
this is one that they almost didn't want to put on the album because I, I want to say either I think Eno doesn't like this song and there's something about and I want to say and there was a review about how there's just somehow the, the way that the song was put together stops it from having an actual flow. Okay. And that there's like there's these places where it stops and it shouldn't. And I think they I don't remember why they ended up keeping it on, but that's why they never played it live because they could never figure out how to make it sound good. And it sounds like yeah. maybe they found a way to change it just enough that it became a better song. That was, but that was the point that, that I think there was like a few songs from this record that they they just never played live and that they figured it out years later how they could do it. Uh, what about In God's Country? So you said this is the only song on side two that you were uh, previously familiar with conversationally. Yeah, this was the only one that I knew. Yeah, I like the song a lot. You know, it's short, it's sweet. It's um, it's certainly not my favorite song on the record. I mean, like this record is so top heavy that, you know, the hits get spent and then you're kind of going through the rest of it. But I think like the placement of In God's Country, where they put it on the second side is good because it kind of gives it a little bit of a kick. I mean, the second side really kind of alternates between maybe not necessarily ballads, but more slower tempo songs. And and with the exception of maybe Exit and, and In God's Country, it, it kind of spaces it out in a way that, that I think that it's it, it gives the album kind of a kick at a point where it needs it. My thing is it, it opens kind of like dull. I think that the opening of this song is not very interesting. However, the chorus is, I think that it has, it has a nice chorus. It's just seeing like random fields in a country I don't live in go by me on the bus listening to the song made that work yeah there, there, there's a lot of imagery I think in this whole record and that's certainly one of the songs that you kind of have like a driving sort of it's not, it's not a song I, I particularly care for but it's not one that I dislike however uh, trip through your wires I fucking hate this song I hate the song for me it was always having to remember Oh, I don't. And, and fast forwarding it before the harmonica starts, right? Okay, because yeah. just I'll, I'll have the headphones on and I'll be doing stuff going over my set and that. So, and then all of a sudden, like there's this harmonica screeching at me. Right. Oh, that was the worst. If I didn't get to it, if I didn't get to the fast forward button on time. Were you OK with the harmonica in uh, Running to Stand Still? I don't remember there being a harmonica in Running to Stand Still. So I saw like a, a friend of mine, Carl Webb, if you're listening, hello, uh, who has a anti harmonica policy. Okay. And we worked together at the record store. And if somebody tried to put on a song with a harmonica, Carl would hurt you. That was just, that was the rule. So Blues Traveler was not his band. <laughs> exactly. And I think some, I'm sure there's some Springsteen that he, he could deal with. But <laughs> so I don't have like a blanket policy like other people, but I just, there's something about the way he just wails at it right in it. You have like two seconds to get to the next track. Right. If you're not paying attention to the other side. I don't know if Bono actually played the harmonica on this. I don't know who and I don't really care because I fucking hate it. Right. I know I think I think he said something like, Yeah, I had to learn how to play harmonica, like to do it in the in the concert, like when he, he played it live uh, years later. Yeah, this is my least favorite song okay. on the record. Yeah. Uh, I don't I don't fucking hate it. I wouldn't I wouldn't <laughs> go that that far. Um, you know, it's interesting. There there were a few songs that they considered for the record and and the record was supposed to be longer and the sweetest thing which is a really great song got cut and it was basically between it was either the sweetest thing was going to get cut or trip through your wires was going to get cut and trip through your wires is definitely coming from blues 
Sweetest Thing definitely comes from R&B. They just felt like, and I think correctly so, that, that Trip Through Your Wires fit better from the context of the whole record than Sweetest Thing would have. And I totally agree with that. I like Sweetest Thing much better as a song. Where did that end up? I think it ended up on a B-side, but it's a popular B-side and pretty nice melody. And uh, No, I just wonder, like, because I'm familiar with that, and I just wonder, was it on a soundtrack, or probably. did it end up on a different record? Or Yeah, it's, it's, I don't think it's ever been released on a record, but I think it's, it's one of those songs that has found a home even though it didn't find a home on a record uh-huh okay interesting and i'll be honest i did not re-listen to this song for this you know because i just couldn't i bet if i skip past it like the harmonica i bet the rest of the song is maybe okay but i just can't yeah but i know a couple people who love that song like i, I know for a couple a couple people friends of mine uh, uh who really love that song it's like their favorite on the record even that's weird i hope you don't associate with those people anymore but um but there are people out there who like like give some love to trip through your wires then we have one tree hill which sometimes i i, I had to double check to make sure i wasn't confusing with red hill mining town so okay, yeah. I, did... <laughs> I feel like this sets up a, a template for a particular type of 90s band there's something about even though this song was okay. you know, recorded in 86 or whatever released in 87 there's something kind of proto 90s about it and i can't put my finger on exactly what i'm talking about i can hear that yeah it's i think it's a song that it fits well on the record i like the song um it's it's like a nice groove it's it's i think one of those songs that i won't really remember it until i hear it again and then i would think like oh yeah i like that tune okay but but it's not one that if i'm walking down the street like six months from now and someone says like oh sing me a line from one tree hill i'll think like, one tree hill how does that go again and now I'll hear it and I'll think, oh, right, yeah, I like that song. But there's nothing there's nothing that really grabs you and, and pulls you into it. I think it's a song that um, that it, it works well in the context of the record. I think like like from sort of the flow of the second uh, of the second side that it, it gives a little bit more energy. I think it's too long because it's like over five minutes long. I think most of the songs are over five minutes. It's, it's a long record. This could have been like a three and a half minute song. Probably would have been a little bit better. So I think some editing could have been done there. And again, there's just something about the the kind of not quite jangly guitar. So not like what REM was doing. Mm-hmm. Like I think what a lot of bands took from REM in the '90s. I think this song kind of feeds into that as well. There's just something. There's just something that sounds very indie '90s. Yeah. To it, just a little bit ahead of time. So again, not you know, I can't think of how this song sounds right now as we're talking about it, and I listened to it twice today. So brings us to exit. Yeah, exit is a hidden gem. Yeah, I think I totally love the power of this song. You know, it's it's even for like you two. Like if you look at like all of their output, exit is one of the darkest things. Like exit and bullet the blue sky is a pretty dark song in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, but exit exit is is pretty demonic in a way and, and yeah I, I love it it's a really powerful song like and and it's totally it reminds me a lot of patty smith hmm. like i totally hear that as being like a patty smith kind of song like it like in the way that that it builds that's interesting i really sort of hear patty smith a little bit and i think that they i don't know how much they're influenced by her i know that they've performed together a couple times oh. i think they've had her do something or i know that they've covered uh people have the power and and uh they've done they've done some of her music before so i mean they're familiar with each other but i i kind of hear patty smith in that song okay i'll have to give that another listen because i i really like this one i think it's got a nice build it's got good emotion and it's one of those times when his voice doesn't irritate me as he's trying to do certain things uh-huh. i really i enjoyed it the only reason like really if you put this song on side one like if it goes bolt in the blue sky and then this song 
I don't need side two. You can just throw side two <laughs> in a garbage can as far as I'm concerned. Uh-huh. That's the only, the only reason why it's worth flipping the record over. And probably because I, I came, I've come really close uh, in the last month of buying this on record. Uh-huh. And this is what stops me. Side two is what stops me from doing it. It's like if I found it used at a good enough price, so far it's only been about like 70s Wadi and I'm not willing to pay that. But it was like 35s Wadi because I'm only going to listen to half of it maybe. <laughs> And then uh, that brings us to the final track here. What is this? I can't read. Oh, Mothers of the Disappeared. I'm guessing from your previous statements that this is not one of your favorites either. doesn't do much for me. It's not a bad song. I listened to it twice. I have no notes next to the song. I have no idea what to say about it. Does he, see, does he even sing on this? He does. Okay, because it's got a pretty lengthy uh, instrumental part, right? There is. It's very instrumental. I, I think the message of this song, I mean, you know, about mothers of children who disappeared in some of the Central American conflicts and stuff. And, and it's been multiple countries where that's happened. And I mean, that was kind of a blueprint in the 80s at that time. They come and they take your politically active child away from you, your politically active teenager, and you never hear from them again, you know. So I think that there's, you know, that that message is, is uh, a profound one that resonates, I think, still today and, and certainly, you know, happens in a lot of different places. So I think U2 is a political band, and, and I loved them for that. And, and for a while, I hated them because they went away from that. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm totally okay with it. I, I'm fine with it as like an ending song on the record. I feel like after Exit, it's a really good kind of to end the record. Yeah, I just I don't have anything good or bad to say about it. It's just like I, I listened to it twice today, just trying to get... And I just... I ended up doing stuff and then like I couldn't even again I couldn't remember if he sang uh-huh. it's a fairly long song and it's like lengthy instrumental parts so right. uh, yeah, one I w- would not really revisit but uh, okay so that's the end of the uh, record there so Paul why don't you give me your final thoughts I think that when you I think one of the reasons that we love music and that we listen to music is that an album is sometimes not just an album of music but an album is a reflection of your life an album is a sounding board for like whatever's happening in your life at that time and 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 it will resonate in a special way with you certain records will will resonate as part of your life it can be you know the record that you were listening to when you lost your virginity it can be the record that you were listening to maybe it was like your favorite record with your high school sweetheart Mm -hmm. you know whatever it is maybe it was like the record that you listen to all the time in college and yeah. you haven't listened to since. You know, whatever it was, like like different records sort of mark different points in your life. And and this record marked a point in my life of, of me hitting puberty and coming of age and really, I mean, is was an introduction to me becoming a musician. So so this record occupies a really profound place in my life. And it's certainly a record that that will stay with me until the day I die. I can listen to it now and I'm as happy listening to it now as I was 30 years ago. It's a record that has been with me through that entire time. I I loved this record so much that when Actoon Baby came out, I liked that record. I didn't love it. Uh, Now I love it. Uh, But it took me some time. And I remember I went, they played a concert at Mile High Stadium in, in Denver. I couldn't afford the tickets. Uh, but I went and I stood outside the stadium just to listen to the concert because of, of how much I revered you two. And at that time, they went for a lot of reasons in a completely different direction. And so they played basically like nothing from the Joshua Tree, none of their old songs. I think maybe they did Pride in the Name of Love. And that was it from okay. all of their old catalog. And at the time, I was pissed. I felt like I was abandoned. I felt like just because they want to go into sort of this rock star bullshit 
direction doesn't mean that, that they have to, you know, completely forget about the past. And years later, if you watch, um, there's a documentary now, I can't remember the name of it, but there's a great documentary that was done by the guy who did um, Waiting for Superman and It Might Get Loud, which is a, a documentary about Jimmy Page, The Edge, and Jack White. He did a, a YouTube documentary about Actum Baby. And, you know, they talked about kind of like the turmoil that they went through with the Joshua Tree and, and like um, Rattle and Hum being a disappointment mm -hmm. and needing to reinvent themselves. And so years later, I appreciate it now. But um, but at the time, I was pissed. And I went through this period where I didn't listen to YouTube for a while. Oh, I've, I've since come back. How about for you? Where does it sit with you now after the tour? Well, I think... Like you said before, it, albums are, can be an interesting document and can mean different things at different times. And I have, um, you know, let's say my favorite album in college was Faith No More is the Real Thing, mm -hmm. which by the time this is played, will have already been, I've already done the real thing as, a, as an album that I fucking love. Because I've actually listened to it so much over the years, it doesn't sit in college with me. Sometimes I'll hear it and I'll remember, sure. but I listened to it enough that it, it lost that, you know, the that college smell right but there are other things like i, I listen to Soundgarden's louder than love mm -hmm. and even though i have listened to that over the years that one still sits firmly in college for me that's uh -huh. nice with this u2 thing is that part of me is always going to hate it because of 1987 mm -hmm. and part of me is always going to love at least five of these songs because of a tour i did in 2018 okay it, it will exist in both you know it'll be schrodinger's album or something it'll exist in both states at the same time because i think ultimately i just I don't like you two. I don't like their sound. I don't like his voice. Uh, I don't like their pretension. <laughs> you know? uh -huh. But I appreciate that as a band, they've continued as is the same four people uh, that they, you know, I think at least try to push themselves or reinvent themselves. Oh, yeah, and, and they have. I mean, they've been one of the few bands that I think have done that successfully. They were so associated with the 80s and not every band gets to move decades. You know, so you right. have a, a, a ton of bands that, you know, were great in the 80s and then um, we don't want to hear you in the 90s for no other reason than it's the 90s. Uh, and only a few people get invited to the next one. And then even fewer get invited to the one after that. You know? right. So the fact that they're still going, a part of me appreciates that, even though I really wish they would just shut the fuck up <laughs> from a personal anti-fan perspective. Uh, that's meaner than I probably should be because whatever. But there, there's always going to be 15 year old me who does not need to hear where the streets have no name ever again. Uh -huh. because I don't need to see that video ever again. And part of me is like at the back of the bus listening to that while I'm putting my set together and like, yeah, okay, yeah, that's like, I get it. That's a good tune. And on the other hand, I think I'll go home and watch that video again just to uh, <laughs> uh, go back and, and try to remember like how that video unfolded. And listen, and I'll tell you, it's, I think it's a slightly different audio track. I think there are, are I think live, you're right. yeah. there's live elements to it. So it's like when I first listened to the record, I was like, this sounds different than I remember. I think they dubbed it in. If I'm not mistaken, I think parts of it are live and parts of it are I think just parts of the vocal performance are live and that's yeah. it. So like when he's saying that, you know, they're shutting us down and then I think... Oh, that definitely, yeah. That's that, obviously not in the thing, but I think... I want to say the music is actually the record and I think the vocals are live. Mm -hmm. I could be wrong about that. I'd have to, I'd have to go watch again, but that's it. So, uh, Paul, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. And it's, uh, you know, fun to talk to somebody who's got a real passion for this album and you got a passion for this album. So. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. Bye. 
Thank you for listening to I Fucking Love This Record. If you would like to co-host an episode, contact me at lovethisrecord at gmail.com. This and every episode can be found on my website, lovethisrecord.com. If you would like to follow us on Facebook, it's Love This Record. Twitter and Instagram, Love This Record 1. Music provided by The Ashes of Grissom. And thanks as always to original patron, Mark Evers. Please remember to subscribe, like, and review, and we'll see you next time. 